0: The Jews have a liturgical practice in both their morning and evening services for the Sabbath day. They always recite together the Shema Israel from Deuteronomy 6, which begins this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. This is a remarkable text that contains what Jesus regarded as the greatest commandment in the Old Testament. He said so in Matthew 22. This liturgical text is called the Shema, which is simply the first word of the text, meaning hear or listen carefully. And so the primary text of Old Covenant religion is about listening, how you hear. The God of the Old Covenant and the New could not be known any other way than by hearing. All visible representations were and are forbidden. Think of how the Israelites' religion was a religion of the ear, not the eye. The Israelites heard the Ten Commandments from atop Mount Sinai, and then they heard them read in their worship. They heard the detailed prescriptions for the tabernacle and its priests and sacrifices. They heard Deuteronomy 27 in which Moses read the 12 things to the 12 tribes for which someone would be accursed. And following each, the tribes would solemnly answer, Amen. They heard the words of Joshua preparing them for their entrance into the land of Canaan. They heard the words of Samuel and other prophets when God spoke words of both judgment and redemption. They heard the songs of the Hebrew Psalter. They heard the wisdom of Solomon. They, after captivity and returning from Babylon, they heard in a reading that lasted all day long. They heard the word read when Nehemiah and Ezra reconstituted them as God's holy people in the land. In the era before Christ and his apostles, Israel heard the law and the prophets then in the synagogues. Some of them, those fortunate few, heard the word read aloud by Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown in his first public act of ministry after his temptation in the wilderness. For 3,000 years, from Moses until the invention of the printing press with Gutenberg, The Hebrew Bible was known only via spoken and heard language. Only a tiny number of scribes had access to biblical manuscripts. There was no private reading or familial reading of the Bible prior to the development of the printing press in the late 1400s. There was only public reading, public preaching, and hearing This was commanded by apostolic authority when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and said, Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. The Apostle Paul also affirmed the importance of oral language, hearing, for our faith when he asked rhetorically in Romans 10, How then will they call upon him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I want you to look at our parable. This is our second week in it. Look at Luke chapter 8. I want you to notice very simply, and then we will develop in some measure, the elements of the parable we'll see today. In Luke 8 verse 5, Jesus gives... the discussion of one part of the parable, he says, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And then by way of explanation of this part of the parable, he says in verse 12, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then, The devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Matthew, in his parallel account, says in Matthew 13, verse 19, this is talking about when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it. Mark adds, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. The parable of the sower, and the reason why we're spending several weeks on this one parable at the beginning of our series on the parables, the parable of the sower is about spiritual experience. In fact, it describes very carefully and in some detail every person in this room. You are one of these four people. The parable of the sower is about how people hear the preaching of the gospel and what they do with it. And it answers the burning question, why doesn't everyone respond in the same way to the preaching of the word? And what this parable teaches is this. When people sit under the hearing of the word, there are two types of responses. One is belief, acceptance, obedience. And the other is, split in three parts, unbelief, rejection disobedience. Jesus gives us this parable so that we could see into the hearts of men in general and so we could see into our own heart in particular. We'll need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear aright and so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we ask now for the help of the blessed Holy Spirit. We lay hold of your promises that He would guide us into all truth and then would graciously bring that truth to our remembrance at opportune times. Help us to so proclaim the word that we may say with the Apostle Paul that we've kept back nothing profitable from the church. Help the preacher to make the word so plain that even the simplest child can hear and understand. Edify those who already believe. Enable them to receive the word with humility. Convict and draw those that have until today never had any use for the word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let me remind you of the foundation that was laid last week as we began this series. I tried to make the case that this parable, the parable of the sower, is the most important of all the 40 parables our Lord spoke. And therefore, you and I should have a distinct interest in it. Why do I say it's the most important? Well, first of all, because it heightens and reveals the spiritual condition of the hearers. It shows who has ears to hear. The second reason why it's the most important is Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 in the parallel that this parable is the key to all the other parallels. Understand this parable, and it's like the magic opening to the other 39. Another reason why it's the most important is it's the only parable repeated in detail in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And let me remind you to mark the parallel passages in Mark 4 and Matthew 13 for ease of reference and consultation. And another reason why it's the most important, it's shown to be that, because this is the only one of the parables that Jesus interprets for us in detail. He shows us, he teaches us hermeneutics, good interpretive skills, and says, here's the principal parable, here's how to interpret it. Now, go and use the same model of interpretation for the other 39. Now, as we pointed out last week, this parable is simple. It has four elements. Look at them very carefully. They're alliterated, just to make it simple. There are four elements. First of all, there's the seed, and we are told the seed is the word of God. And second, there's sowing, it's an action, and we're told that this is the preaching or speaking of the word of God. And third, there's the sower, the one distributing and proclaiming the word. But the most important part is the fourth element. The one element that changes in the four different occasions is soils. Because this is, soils represent the hearts of the hearers, of which there are four distinct types. Hard ground, or the wayside, the path. Rocky ground, thorny ground, good ground. Now remember, Jesus is making a clear and powerful point in this parable. And it is this. Of these four, only one is a converted, saved hearer, and that is the good ground heart. Contrary to the theory that's been spread in American evangelicalism now for 60 years, known as the carnal Christian theory, or in other circles it's known as the optional holiness theory, which says you can be a believer, you can be on your way to heaven, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and live like the devil. Never bearing any fruit. Contrary to what Jesus clearly taught over and over again by by their fruits, you shall know them. Or what Jesus says in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. And what we're going to see, what, what tips it off to us, is we are told specifically about one of the types of soils. The good ground. We are told specifically, this is the only one who bears fruit. Today we'll examine the first of the hearts described. Remember, you're here. You're one of these four types of soils. Your name is written in this parable. So look at the picture drawn in Matthew 13, verse 2. The parallel text tells us that Jesus sat down in a boat a few feet from the shore in the Sea of Galilee and told this parable. He is The, the boat is, is in the soft, lapping waves just outside of Capernaum, and Jesus is sitting in the boat facing the crowd who is seated on the seashore. And he tells this parable. He looks over to a field, an agricultural field, of which there are hundreds in that region. And as Jesus starts to tell the parable, there's probably a, a farmer who has his bag of seed, and he's doing something that everyone there had seen a hundred times. He's sowing seed in his field. The summer before Sandy and I were married, I spent the summer working for a construction crew that was building a state park in Choctaw, Oklahoma. I did everything that summer from pound nails to drive a front end loader, and one day the boss said, Carl, I want you to go out and seed about 10 acres of grass with Bermuda seed. This is going to be our sod farm over there. Seed it right. So he draped a huge bag that looked like a cotton sack over my chest filled with seed. And I would walk a few steps, reach in, throw some seed, keep walking and throwing. And I did that for the entire week. I can tell you something about sowing. Sowers in Palestine had something I didn't have. The sower would walk on a well-worn path, a hard path, about 18 inches wide. People used these for shortcuts through agricultural fields, and the, the pathways were beaten down hard by constant commerce, and sowers used to walk carefully on those paths as they sowed. So Jesus tells us here the farmer's sowing, he's walking on the path, and invariably, even though he didn't want it to, couldn't control it, a few of the seeds, some of the seeds fell right at his feet on that hard, narrow, beaten down path. And as he walked over them, he would trample them and even break up those seed that fell at his feet. Now sitting up in the tree, the parallel texts tell us, and watching all of these proceedings were the birds. And you know what they're saying to one another. <laughs> Free dinner. They don't even have to work for this food. The seed's just laying there on top of the hard path, easy pickings. And as the, soul, as the sower walked on, they would swoop in behind him, stand on the path, and snatch up that seed. That's the picture, an occurrence everyone in Jesus' congregation that day had seen. Let's talk about this, what this truth means. Several central truths are to be taught here. As we've already asserted, the marvelous thing about this parable is that we don't have to speculate or engage in eisegesis. Eisegesis means bringing a foreign meaning to the text as opposed to exegesis, which means determining the author's original intent. Because Jesus does all the interpretive work for us. He tells us what the parable means. And here's the central truth to this first hearer. Listen carefully. Just like seed drops out of a sower's hand onto a hard path and so never will bear fruit. God's word is preached and falls on hard hearts and doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't find softness. It doesn't find a heart that's tilled and fallow. It finds a hard heart. The word is heard but not understood. It's snatched up by the evil one. So let's analyze this first type of hearer. First of all, hearing occurs. Now look carefully at Luke chapter 8, verse 12, and I want you to notice the actual wording. We are told those by the wayside, this is the hard ground hearer, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. This person has said under the word. They're a hearer. This isn't someone who's never said under the preaching of the word, unlike the three billion Unreached people in the world today out of 8 billion. 3 billion people this morning have never heard the reading or preaching of the word. The hard ground here isn't a Muslim in Libya who doesn't have access to a Bible or a preacher. This isn't even someone who's sitting in the pew of a liberal church where the word is never read and preached. This is someone who's heard the word of God read and preached but has repeatedly slammed the door to it, repeatedly rejected it. No understanding takes place. In the parallel rendering in Matthew chapter 13, 19, we're told that the hard ground or the wayside hearer doesn't understand the word. The word's not comprehended. It makes no sense to him. Have you ever heard someone say, I have, I just don't get it. How can these people sit here week after week? What is that all about? Years ago, a woman and with her husband visited Woodruff Road, and she'd grown up in a Jehovah's Witness church. After she had visited for a few weeks, we were talking at the back door, and I said, so what's the biggest difference you see between Jehovah's Witness preaching and ours here? She said, I don't see any. I didn't understand them, and I don't really have a clue what you're talking about. That's the heart of the reprobate, the calloused, the spiritually uncaring. It's shown through continued disobedience, lack of concern over their eternal state, lack of discipline, hardness towards spiritual things. Every occasion that stirs the sensitive, it doesn't faze them. Years ago and far away, we were pastoring a young couple who had both grown up in devout Christian homes. But they were marginal, peripheral. They had a beautiful little girl we saw in the nursery one Sunday. And the next day, when they went into her bedroom to wake her up on Monday morning, she was lifeless and not breathing. She died in the night, a crib death. And I preached the funeral, one of the hardest I've ever done. And I just knew that day at the funeral that they'd be spiritually aroused because they'd have to face the issues of life and death. It didn't impact them one bit. It didn't faze them. They wanted to know when we would go out for the family lunch. That's a hard ground here. This heart, this first heart is in a vicious cycle. Every time they hear the word and reject it, they place another callous on their own heart. You remember that God's word is called a two-edged sword because it cuts both ways. It always has a dual effect. Listen to how Paul speaks of it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, "We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one were the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. To the hardened this morning, the word is a stench in your nostrils. To the softened it's a sweet aroma." The gospel heard is either the greatest blessing or the greatest curse. You can see it on people's faces as you preach. As you tell of the marvelous riches of Christ and his free salvation, from some there's just a blank look, an inability to put two and two together. From other, there's excitement and understanding and joy. Why don't wayside receivers hear the word? Well, maybe they don't want to be inconvenienced. They're like Felix in Acts 24 who said to Paul, come back another time. Maybe it's because they know if they receive the word, they have to renounce the world, mortify the flesh, and resist the devil. (coughs) Maybe it's hostility to the preacher of the word or hostility to the message. But the chief reason the Lord gives, look at the text and the parallels, They don't receive the word because of the profound activity of the evil one. In this parable, Jesus is reminding us of the person and work of Satan and all his demonic forces. Satan is not absent when the word is preached. Stare at verse 12. Notice what we are told. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The evil one is more faithful than most church members. He's here early and he stays late. He's laying in ambush. His first movement this morning is upon the unconverted and the uncaring. He spotted you. You're half asleep, not interested in the word. You're bored, disinterested, you are ripe for the picking. The exercise in God's word was something that he saw and delighted in. He's come to snatch the word away from you. And according to the parallel account in Mark 4.15, Satan immediately snatches the word. He's fast. The word is gone. You hear it? It's in one ear and out the other. Nothing of God's truth has stirred you, instructed you, rebuked you, or corrected you. To you, life is eating, sleeping, working, recreating, and pleasure. Satan's been at work in your hearts hundreds of times. He works by distraction. If he can't persuade you to think about the conversation of yesterday, he'll prompt you to plan your sales meeting for Tuesday or your grocery list, or to simply study the clothing and hairstyle choices of all those around you. He can raise up distractions. When we were in Las Vegas, we had a satanic distraction. We had a a couple who sat right over here, and the husband was from Greece and the husband and the wife was from Mexico. And he didn't speak English and she didn't speak English and he didn't speak Spanish and she didn't speak Greek. I don't know how they got married. But they would sit there on the third row and they would try to translate my sermon to each other. They would lean over in each other's ears, but they didn't whisper. They would just speak in a conversational tone. And so they would, they would speak and, and you would notice people around them who would, after a couple of weeks, people started moving away from them because it was like having to hear it. Two competing messages and their volume was more than mine. And pretty soon it looked like the Red Sea. And so finally I went to them, and, you know, I'm always amazed at this. This is Sociology 101, that there are folks who don't have social awareness. So I went to them and said, as carefully as I could, I actually took an interpreter with me to make sure they understood, and I said, do you realize you're a distraction in the service? And they said, why? And I said, because you're talking loud. And so the people around you, they're so fascinated by your mistranslation of my sermon, especially children, that they're not hearing a word I'm saying. And they said, really? And I said, yes. They said, what should we do? I said, how about this? Try just listening and not saying anything. And so it was, it was fascinating. You have people who are tools in the hands of the evil, and they don't realize they're a distraction. No social awareness whatsoever. And so that's the sort of thing that the pastor is always having to deal with, is is demonic distractions. That's one of the things the evil one is going to do, because this is part of his strategy. If he can't work by distraction, he'll work by drowsiness. That's why you should plan, by the way, on Saturday evenings to get the most rest, Be spiritually prepared to come early and hear the word, knowing the evil one will try to snatch it away through drowsiness. But Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, whose the image of God, should shine on them. So why does the evil one want to snatch away the word? Well, that's simple. His aim is always to steal and kill and destroy. In this case, he wants to rob you of the word and destroy your life. He knows that faith comes by hearing. And so if he can't keep you from hearing through distraction, he'll snatch the word away as quickly as possible before you can digest, understand, meditate, and believe. Look at the text in, our, in Luke 8, verse 12. He does not want Any hearer to believe and be saved. Now, we're told in the parallel text, he works quickly. He's punctual. He's not like some churchgoers who who drag in 5 to 25 minutes late. He's on time. He works fast. He's there ready. There's a famous gospel song entitled, He's an on-time God, but the evil one is an on-time devil. Mark 4.15 says that he immediately comes and takes away the word. And he works powerfully. He has the amazing ability to take away from your heart the very preaching of the word. How do we apply this word? Well, knowing that Satan's method is to snatch the word away immediately, you and I must intentionally plan to hold on to the word. The last thing the evil one wants you to do is meditate upon the word. And discuss it. Why, it might take root then, if you do. A moment ago, we confessed together a larger Catechism 160 that asked the question what is required, not suggested, required of those that hear the word preached? You can look in your bulletin and see it there. It is required of those that hear the word preached, they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. That means talk about it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the truth of it in their lives. You see, our catechism grabs it perfectly. This is what's to be done with the word. Discuss it. Ponder it. Meditate on it. Oh, with what care and diligence should we attend upon the word and lay it up in our hearts? But this parable does more. It teaches us of the danger of a hard heart. The hard path, beaten down by many footsteps, is a perfect figure for hard hearts. Repeated sin and repeated unbelief harden you. All of your worldly dealings harden you. This is the person, this first up of here, that is untouched by the word. God's broken law may be thundered at you. No remorse, no sorrow, never a tear of repentance. You're too hard. The cross may be set before you in all its beauty and power, but you never resolve to go and act in faith on the word and cling to Christ. You're too hard. And so let me ask you a diagnostic question. When was the last time the word ever got through your defenses and made a dent in your hard heart? When was the last time you repented because of the word? When was the last time you took the word to heart and acted upon it? My friend, look right now. I'm holding up the word as though it's a mirror. Is this you with the hard heart? And then there's another truth this text is teaching us. And that is the danger of delay. When the Apostle Paul was before Felix in Acts 24 proclaiming the word, Felix got nervous and he said, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you another day. Felix was telling Paul, wait a while or later. This is the standard dodge of the hard heart. When Moses kept bringing the word of the Lord to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 8, he said to Pharaoh, all you have to do is give the word and you can be delivered from the plague of the frogs. Pharaoh had heard God's word of judgment and he had seen the fulfillment, the plague of frogs. They were everywhere. They were jumping all around his palace throne room at that moment. But Pharaoh said, You know, Moses, come back tomorrow. I'll talk to you tomorrow about stopping the plague. Do you see what he's saying? I'd rather spend another night in rebellion against God and be under his judgment than bow the knee and respond to his word now. Perhaps you're in high school and you're saying, tomorrow. Carl, I've got thousands of tomorrows. I've got 60, 70 years But the very lifestyle you're living today will harden you for tomorrow. The rejection of God's word now will callous you for then. What this parable is telling us is respond today. Hebrews 3 says today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Oh, my hardened friend, do you not know that your greatest need is for a new heart? The promise of the gospel is that Christ can remove your stony heart and give a heart of flesh, one that's soft and responsive to the gospel. Cry out to him today. Today. Today, saying, take away my dead dullness and give me a heart that delights to receive the word. Today. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would guard us from the evil schemes of Satan snatching the word away, even in this moment. So by your Holy Spirit, give us remembrance and understanding of your word that we might believe and live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.